0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is poet Maritza Estrada. Our conversation was recorded by Zoom. Maritza Estrada was born in Toppenish, Washington, to Mexican parents and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. She earned her BFA in Creative Writing at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, where she received a full academic scholarship as a Buffett scholar. Estrada is currently residing in Tempe as an MFA candidate in Creative Writing and teaches at Arizona State University. She is the poetry editor at Hayden's Ferry Review and is the co-artistic director for Borderlands Poetry and Reading Series at ASU. Estrada is a 2020 Canto Mundo Fellow. Her honors and awards include the 2019 Virginia G. Piper Creative Research Fellowship, 2019 Virginia G. Piper Creative Engagement Fellowship, winner of the Maybell A. Lyon Poetry Award, Swarthout Award in Poetry, and is an alumna in the 2019 Tin House Winter Workshop and 2018 Winter Tangerine Workshop at Poets House. Her work can be found in Pigeonholes, Blue Mesa Review, Rio Grande Review. The Flat Waters Stirs, an anthology of emerging Nebraska poets, Misbehaving Nebraskans Anthology, and 13th Floor Magazine. Maritza, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Stuart.
0: Uh, How could anybody not be struck by your inclusion in the Misbehaving Nebraskans Anthology? What does it take to become a Misbehaving Nebraskan?
1: Mm, I remember when that when that call of submissions happened it's probably around summer 2017 and I think the book came out uh, December 2017 but yeah I remember the the call for submissions and it said something like well, what does it mean to be misbehaving and to be in Nebraska so I thought a lot about landscape I thought a lot about um, beer for some reason Midwest gets that rep um, which I, I, I love it <laughs> um, but it also made me think about the weather also, too, how the weather can also make us enter sort of like these these wavelengths, because I, I noticed a lot of my dear friends and, and family members um, and classmates at the time, always in the winter time people would start kind of getting depressed. And it's like, oh, it's so cold. There's nothing to do indoors. So I don't know, just sort of dipping into that kind of mindset for misbehaving poet
0: what role has poetry played in your life?
1: Um, I think poetry has always been there with me before I could name it. At a young age, I moved a lot uh, states from where I was born to where I was raised to where I'm at now. And I always had sort of that, that kind of head mindset of why am I always moving in schools and houses and why am I feeling like these deep questions? and. I think one of my first moments of writing that I feel like I could name something I was probably in the 4th grade 3rd or 4th grade and I remember just having a sort of a journal a little small journal and, and saying like I see these differences happening in the classroom and this doesn't feel right and it, it might be a little vague right now but you know just noticing racial injustices or or the way that pedagogy was working back then and knowing like this doesn't feel right and letting that go, but always had that mindset. And I think once I was in in undergrad school at UNO, I remember we were required to take a intro to autobiography reading and writing class. And I was introduced to the best teacher I, I could ever have and mentor Todd Robinson. And he he kept pushing me and I was a freshman, 2013, and I saw him again the next year for an intro to creative writing class. And he would say, "Buddy, you got something." And I would say, "No, no, no. I'm gonna be a pre. I'm a pre-med. I'm gonna be a doctor." But I think around that time period, I, I thought a lot about, like, I'm still. I still have these questions about life and nature and and grief, even in studying like organisms and species and spending a lot of time in labs and then one day it must have been spring summer 2015 and around that time period i I thought and i kept thinking like this is this is something that i really enjoy and, and i could see myself doing this for forever and then i had a dream that i was a poetry professor and i had students around and I remember just like teaching and having a conversation with them. And then eventually I woke up and then I said, that's what I'm supposed to do. And then I changed my major and like the rest is history and, and a lot's happened. And now I'm at ASU in my second year of grad school. I have one more year left and I'm actually teaching a poetry class. This, and this is my first time. And I, there's, there's just something very tender of how that all happened in full circle.
0: You mentioned a mentor in this situation. How do you see your role at ASU being a teacher of this form, this art form, this form of creative expression? How do you see your role as a mentor, as a teacher in that context?
1: Yeah, it's a a role as a mentor, teacher, editor, um, also student, taking classes. Um, It's something that I don't take for granted it's something that whenever entering the classroom or when I did because now we're doing Zoom classes and meetings um, I always would have to tell myself like like how the, the my previous professors and current professors would show up for us students like I want to do that same to them I want to bring in that that rigor that was taught to me through my professors at UNO because I'm I'm a firm believer in like creating an environment where everyone is like equal and it's not this sort of like i am your teacher and i am teaching you these things it's like let's let's sit in a circle let's be in conversation um my professors always say um oh, one of my current professors um natalie diaz she she uses the word wonder and possibilities and inevitably is that word also then i pass on to my students and say like, there's so many possibilities. And yeah, and I, I, I try also to give them as many sources and, and ways of looking at language early on. Um, so for example, earlier on in the semester, we looked at Solma Sharif's book, Look, I believe is a 2016, 2017 um, finalist in like the National Book Award. And I would tell my students, I'm just giving you a lot of like reading material because in this stage of intro to poetry, you're probably going to be introduced to the history, the inheritance of what poetry is. Um, I think a lot about um, William Carlos Williams. I think about um, a lot of white male writers, um, so to say. But it's like, no, let me also give you this lens of diverse writers. And I think it might be more exciting.
0: You alluded to. The emergence of poetry in a way in your life before you even could give um, a name to what that was for you. So I, I want to back up just a little bit and ask you maybe just to share a little bit about your upbringing and um, what your life was like.
1: Well, I'm Mexican American. Um, I speak two languages, uh, Spanish and English, of course, and um, I consider Spanish my my native uh, tongue. I remember listening to it. It a lot growing up in the household, but there will also be a lot of English, so um, English from uh, predominantly like my uncle's. What's interesting about that upbringing, I would say, um, I, I was born in Toppenish washington it's a it's in the Yakima Indian Reservation. I'm not native, but my 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 dad sometimes jokes and says, Well, you, you kind of look native, and it's a very small town. And I stayed there until I was probably four years old. And then we we moved to Nebraska for more work opportunities. My parents worked. They were migrant workers. They, they picked apples seasonally, asparagus, peaches. Um, so I, I saw a lot of fruits in my house um, at that time. A lot of memories there. Um, always a sweet tenderness towards apples. And manzanas are something that, I consider like even an emblem still today and it's like whenever i see something it's like manzana like it brings you me back home so there's that beautiful memories there and then nebraska from like five to 23 and i think there that's where i was able to question a lot um brownness in white spaces predominantly schools noticing racial indifferences um always just questions and observations. And sort of, I was always like a, like a nomad growing up. Um, was always sort of on my own. I would make friends here and there in college, but always just sort of in like the headspace. And just Omaha, It's it has a very sweet, tender spot to my heart. And I was recently there and to point to like downtown Omaha, where the Woodman Tower is or pedestrian bridges. There's something very tender about saying like I've had so many memories there and then now leaving um it's yeah it's a place that I miss dearly and yeah just sort of sort of in that lens Something holding me back Cut ties No lies inside
0: So you've shared some work with me, and it seems some some themes might be visible in your work, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I want to invite you perhaps to share what those themes might be and, and how you're trying to make sense of them in poetry. So for example, um, a couple of the pieces you shared were, I feel, quite personal and put you quite centrally in the frame of the narrative that you were presenting and the issues you were talking about. And then some of them seem to deal with this idea of um, your physicality, your your body, but also your sense of physicality in terms of place. And then I certainly want to talk about language and, and the degree to which you mentioned being Mexican-American but how language itself and maybe cultural identity is being explored in your work. So all sorts of different themes. And I, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit to the themes you're you're wrestling with.
1: Mm, it's a good question. When you mentioned those pieces that I'd shared, um, the first piece that popped to mind was an essay that I wrote called How to Celebrate. And I something that I always tell my, my peers here at ASU and that I've recently shared with my students is, the body always knows before mind and that's something like I I think a lot about because the body it's explored or it, it takes it takes a while more for the mind to register like oh this event happened whereas sometimes the body gets it gets goosebumps or it just sometimes feels like this gut feeling like this does not feel right and that's something that I firmly believe is bestowed to us through our ancestors um Something that I think for some it, it may take years or for some naturally it, it is in us and I believe it is in all of us. And um, so the body is something I'm really intrigued about exploring in terms of how institutions handle us. Um, hospitals, people who are incarcerated, people who have to work, you know, outdoors, labor work. But also like in the, the sphere that I'm in, I think a lot about academic institutions and how the language there in some ways programs some to think and behave a certain way because that's just how it is. And so for me, I always am in conversation to like my body and my mind and say, like, how can I interrogate? How can I refute this but still be in here so that I can make this space possible for future generations and that's something that that brings me back towards my students and so yeah that's one lens i I, am very interested in exploring more um like places that we we visit often um thinking a lot about arizona right now because i'm in i've been living here for two years and i have yet to see the border but I felt it from a distance um, around the Tucson area when I flew to Mexico for the first time. And that was a trip that happened June 1st, 2019 to July 1st, 2019. So it's almost the year anniversary. And I remember flying over and just seeing like this, like this dark line. And it was around, I want to say like the Sonora Desert. So I believe, strongly believe, like looking down at the plane, I remember seeing and thinking, I think that's it and I took pictures of it and there's just something gut-wrenching that made me feel aware of where I stand through these two binaries and being Mexican but then American Mexican by ancestors by blood but American through this paper and and yeah and and language is something else that I I think a lot about and how there there are things that can't be said in the English tongue compared to like the Spanish tongue and for so many reasons it could be the way that the syntax is working but there's also just this this like deep emotionality towards it that, that I, I don't think I'll ever figure out until I'm like done existing on this earth.
0: You know I, I think that's really really interesting because you talked about being bilingual and thinking of Spanish as a, as a native tongue I don't speak Spanish, so it would be hard for me to access poetry or creative writing that you produced in that form. I'm wondering for myself what a, what a sense of loss that is. Um, but I'm also wondering if you uh, like to play with language, not just in terms of the form of poetry or creative writing, but to explore the full possibilities of language by juxtaposing the different interpretations that come from one being in Spanish and and one form being in English. And certainly you did that in the piece, how to celebrate uh, referencing some Neruda poetry, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And um, so it seems to me that you are using the possibilities inherent in the fact that the same word or the same expression or the same sentiment may not be the same thing in different languages. How are you, trying to play with language in the sense of um, a native tongue versus a second tongue?
1: Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, yeah, recently i that's something I've been thinking a lot about of like some of the mo- most recent work that I'm working on. Um, and then, that I'm still holding tender to my heart. Um, I'm not quick to publishing and saying like, here, here, here. I, with anything that I write, I always want to hold it and be careful with what I do. Um, with Spanish and English. Um, and sometimes how often, um, with like Brown narratives sort of, it's already assumed that uh, because of this background then for my audience, like I am going to perform both languages. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about performance. And so even with poems to, to include both languages, why is that reasoning? Um, I think that's where I'm at right now. Um, And sometimes when I'm writing and if I include possibly um, some autobiographical work in poems, when the Spanish does come out, um, I could see it coming out of my grandma, my abuelita, or my mom or my dad saying something in Spanish to me that in those words, in that line, it has a soul and a spirit to it that I want to hold it forever. So I will not change it and keep it as is and have it that way for whomever can understand it. But I know, most importantly, it's to archive. That's something I'm thinking about. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: You are listening to LIVES. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is LIVES. My guest today is poet Maritza Estrada. Our conversation was recorded by Zoom. You are currently recognized as a uh, Canto Mundo fellow which which is aimed at um, supporting and nourishing uh, Latinx poetry, poets, poetics and I wonder if you maybe we'll just speak a little bit about what that means for you.
1: Yeah. So with the uh, Canto Mundo, um, it's an organization that is there to uplift and support um, Latinx writers, um, Afro-Latinx writers. And it's perhaps like the only space that's there for Latinx people. And I just remember at a young age, like looking up to that and and looking at the recipients and, and thinking like, wow, like that space is open, like for us and and sometimes in entering other spaces, like we're the minority and to have that again, like for us, like it's something that, like I remember receiving the news um, when Carolina paid, um called me and left me a voicemail and we're messaging and just thinking like, did that happen because it's very hard to get in um, because it is so limited and they can only take a small amount per year and a lot of people apply. And so I I view that that space as like encouraging of like gathering us so that we can share these ideas, our writing, dialogue, these things that we talk a lot about like landscape, language, um, because it, it's already ingrained in us, uh, family, um, you know, experiences with school, because it varies per person, where we can, and I would hope, we can gather and create these new ideas of passing on this information to our students, ourselves, our modes of practice of writing poetry, and just surviving. So that's, that's something that, um, in regard to that, I, I am, I am all for that, because there's other organizations out there, um, that are there for other um, minority groups. Uh, so, the Kundaman um, for Asian Americans, there's the Kavekanam for African American folks. So, like, they're there for us. And and in doing and participating in that, um, then we can like do more work, and, and it does help us.
0: I'm certainly in no way questioning the, the, the merit of any of those organizations that, that you referenced. Um, nor what a prestigious opportunity it is for you to be involved in in a space like that and to celebrate that. So with that caveat, I guess, being said, I also know that your writing and your potential is is also so rich and needn't necessarily be constrained into representing some Mexican-American viewpoint because that seems too delimiting. And so I'm I'm wondering to what degree any expectations that you perform as a Mexican American creative writer can be limiting to you in some way, if you've encountered that at all, or um, or not.
1: Mm, yeah. No. And um, yeah. Um, sort of, kind of going back to body and like um, from the get go, saying like this is what I am is sort of in relation to whenever we enter spaces like. I mean, people have eyes and ears and um, we we can sort of see like, oh, like, or maybe assume. So I think for me, sometimes I have to say that this is where I am. This is who I am. And this is where I'm from. Because if I if I don't name it, then someone else will do the work for me. And it's like, um, like, no, you won't do it. Like, I will. I think like my background, that's who, that's where I, I come from but there's so many things that like, I want to write about and I do write about. Um, so I, I don't feel limited. I, in some ways, I feel like with everything that I've been recently working on, it's like, I want to disrupt something. I want to make people think a different way. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I've been, I've been making poems that aren't a stanzaic line, you know, a form. There's poems that are in landscape that include images and there's some that include maps. There's some that include like a lot of fact statements. And I would hope with what I'm doing right now, um, I just want people to think a different way and and not just say, oh, this is a book about what it means to be Mexican-American. That's just a slice of who I am. Um, I'm interested in in science. I'm interested in plants. I'm interested in the Saguaro desert. I'm interested in, a lot recently towards bougainvilleas, I, there's just something very tender in how specifically bougainvilleas, they're here in Arizona, they're also in Mexico, and they, they pronounce bougainvilleas over there, bougainvilleas, and they, they're different colors too, so I think that's so fascinating in how that is connected and tethered to other things that I'm related to, so it's like a whole, and I've been telling my friends recently, it's like Everything that we're writing, it's like a bracelet. So you're just adding another like, you know, like little dot thingy and then you tie it. So there's just so many things that I'm excited writing towards. And maybe some may not mesh well with it, but that's okay. Like, I'm just all possibilities.
0: Would you be willing to read something for us? Definitely. Thank you.
1: Seminar. If to be asked again, where are you from? Give them a gaze. As if looking into my eyes, you see a machete slicing mangoes. Guerrillas bordering Guerrero. You are a descendant of muerte. Strike. Manejo, maps, not a tube down into a throat, not a call to answer green, not a medical bill we cannot pay, not Estella pigtails in cadence of, okay, mama, okay, papa, without either parent, not a 20-hour drive, the three out of six child time travels without answers, I refute unwitnessing, not one more call, drive, gas pump, feeds machine, which advances me, which if no one documents, all is erased. I love you. I'll do one more. This is um, I'll I'll read one more. Um, this one's very tender to me. Um, obliterate ombligo, and with ombligo means belly button or navel. Um, so I remember visiting washington my hometown in grandview november 2018 and it had been 14 years since i had last been there when i was like 4 years old or actually 9 from a family trip and like there were so many parts that i wanted to like see the hospital where i was born i wanted to my my grandma and my my dad actually ended up visiting also and they showed me like this is a house where you grew up and And then this was the other house. And there's just something very tender about having both my grandma and my dad with me and archiving and documenting a lot. Um, So yeah, this is Obliterated Ombligo. When I returned to where I had left my umbilical cord, I walked foot by foot attempting to revive before I learned how to breathe. When I say breathe, I mean vivid. I mean the paralysis between alive and half-dead inside my mother. Alive when one solitary cry into earth fills the delivery room with lagrimas. Announcement, announcement, time, baby's weight, sex, nationality, parents' nationality. To the receptionist, I said, I was born in this hospital. I need to retrieve my umbilicus. I no longer reside in the mountains, have migrated to the desert, deserted the prairies, desired for 14 years to return to Abolita, whom taught me how to masticate black beans con tortilla. Call me Fantasma, Rover, Chipilona, Mija, or Emi. Walk, caminar, walk, caminar. The receptionist said, good luck. This place is small. In returning from my navel, my first corazón, I closed my eyes and touched walls. Aquí, here, I must have been born. A woman had walked these halls and phoned the future. Every day we speak, two hours behind in the past. And right when I think I'm closer to my belly button, dust storms come from dark? A scorpion refracts in light. I open my palm, ready, entierrate en mi. My skin like sand, my body one day beneath glass, possibly I'll never understand the cycle, vivir, mover, regresar, morir, live, move, return, die, how many exile lives have I lived, mouth opens for Aire, mis ojos.
0: Thank you for reading. That was beautiful. you use poetry to help you make sense of the world, to make sense of your experiences? And I'm wondering if poetry itself enables you or makes you look at the world differently?
1: Yes, to make sense of the world, um, to make sense of how it's always constantly moving and changing, um, and where I and, and certain community members and all people have a role in it it's like an ecosystem so it's like we're just all breaking up into each other and to understand yes um to question to think of futurity to dream to enter head spaces emotional states that i think sometimes it can be it can be difficult to enter and when entering those headspaces, spaces, the highs and the lows and the in-betweens, I think there it requires a lot of patience, um, a practice of silence, kindness, um, and madness also. So and a variety of each and to make sense of that and and I've always um I've always paid attention, but there's just something about like grabbing a pen and paper and making it a physical, tactile act to where then to have the hand and the mind both in that act, it makes it more certain, like, this happened or is happening or will happen. And with poetry, um, naming and saying, like, this is what I do. This is my craft. I am a poet. I am a professor of poetry, editor in poetry there's something in that where it is a responsibility and it's something where it is my duty to be always um, aware of of everything, um, whether it's the COVID situation happening right now and that, or whether it's climate change or whether it's like borders um, or even to the small minute thing of time zone change differences. Like that's something where I have to pay attention and and always, jotting notes down always Uh, could be receipts it could be i was recently on the road um, returning back to arizona from nebraska it took two days 20 hours Um, the first day i was on the road for 14 hours the second day was six hours and one way for me to to think about so many so many things about traveling i guess back into the past the time zone change happened and the COVID situation and thinking about family there's something about where in each stop that I ended up getting gas, I would check the time. So I would, in my notes app, I put like $14 Trinidad, Colorado. So like, you know, and it went from Nebraska to Kansas, to Colorado, New Mexico, and then Arizona, always keeping track of that as if to allow me to make sense of the situation that's happening. And and while also being on the road so yes it and I, I agree to that and to to credit my professor anna Minardo from undergrad uh she teaches at uno she one day she looked at us and just said it's your job like that's your job to do you're you're writers like you're supposed to always be attentive to the smallest and the biggest things and so thank you anna <laughs>
0: How does that translate then to Hayden's Ferry Review? So, you mentioned uh, the responsibility of poetry as a craft, and also your role within that includes being an editor of poetry at that literary journal. And it is your job. Um, There are some practical issues here, but I also think maybe some fairly grand ones to do with what is the place of a literary journal in. The 21st century mm. what is the role of um, what is the responsibility of an editor in in that context but maybe first i just want to ask you perhaps just to talk about the practical issues of being a poetry editor mm.
1: practical issues with poetry editor um yeah we receive a lot of submissions for hayden's Fairy review um I'm the poetry editor, so I, I look at all the poetry submissions, and we, we're we're a huge team. Uh, we got fiction editor, we have the editor in chief, we have um, readers, interns. So it's a team again. Back to like the ecosystem; it's not just one person making the final decision. Um, we recently had our deadline for March thirty first, uh, but I think we're still taking submissions, and so it's all all unsubmittable. So there's poems I. People can submit up to six poems, and yeah, it's it's something. Also, I'm very careful with handling. Um, sort of to think like these poems could be the poems of my students, or this could have been a past self too. Also doing it, whereas someone else is looking over the submission. So would I want someone to handle my submission with care? Yes, of course. So I will do the same, and yeah, it it does take a lot of time to look at poems. Um, I look at, I read them all, and I think the, the the hard part is where, like, you wish you could take them all, but for an issue, um, there's, you know, like a page limit, and it's not going to be 300 pages, it's probably going to be around the 100 page mark, so because of that, the stakes then become higher of, like, what is a poem, so then I, I do wonder, like, what poems are currently fighting for my attention, and that's something that I always think about, and it does require a distance where I have to look at the poems and say, like, I'm not going to look at who the person's bio is or who their background, it's the poems, and I'm a firm believer that the poems will fight for you, and I always have to enter in a good headspace, so, um, like in the mornings, so poems that, something that you brought up earlier, that play with language, play with syntax, something that can be universal. There's grief poems, there's poems about love, desire, but there's also poems about thinking about like borders, thinking about um, like smoke, not just as like this element, but as like a form, like that that's a recent poem that we got from our last issue. And like that one blew my mind because it had so many layers to it. Um, so anything that it that i feel like is new and i feel like maybe i could be wrong but maybe in other journals um and actually i might not be wrong but other journals do have a taste and every journal does or like a style and it will vary per year per issue um but i'm always down for the ones that seem odd the ones that's that i feel like maybe 50 years ago wouldn't be told that that's a poem like like I am so for like disrupting what poetry is and and oftentimes the people that do write those poems I then come to realize they're from um marginalized backgrounds and I'm like like oh okay so like this is this is why like this is fantastic well so, for so many reasons but it's not surprising I guess
0: so what then do you think of is the role of a literary journal today and what might be its role in the future?
1: It's something um, me and some of my team members have, have spoken about. Um, will it eventually not be a paper issue and then will then only be online? And what does that mean of online interactions? And we do journals are online, Twitter, Instagram. Um, But the thing about how the Internet works, I guess, in terms of like literary uh, journals is sometimes some track a lot of feed um, and some profiles don't. So I think that goes back to how can you engage with your community? How can you engage to people who are interested in in literary journals and, and poetry, writing contemporary? Maybe that's not necessarily mainstream. So. I think there has to be a, a way for literary journals to to start thinking. And I know a lot are of like engaging with people um, and not just saying, here's a product here, because that kind of goes back into like consumerism like here. But it's like, but why? Like, like, I don't I'm not affiliated to this journal. So for the future, um, I feel like it'll still be present, but it it may have to change. Uh, as a mode to engage and that's something that i'm not too sure about um but i, I but i know literary journals will be okay they'll, they'll still be alive close my eyes you're looking back at me as real as autumn air i take and breathe try as you might but you can't hide from me. you sous
0: I really love this, this epiphany you had and this realization and encouragement that being a poet was something you could and should do, but if you weren't a creative writer, what other art form do you think you might have pursued or would you have liked to have been a master of?
1: That's a good question. Um Maybe the art form is the one that I had to let go and that was medicine. So. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about actually recently with like the whole COVID situation and and watching the news of how nurses and doctors and anyone, even to like the sanitation workers are working in the hospital, again, back to like the ecosystem of like treating patients and um, thinking about like, what if I had not pursued poetry in the art form and had stuck to medicine, which is also artful in its own way. Um, and. Yeah, there's just something also, too, about doing like the hands-on work, um, like always probably now thinking about it, it goes back to my whole like nomad study. I, I sometimes say I'm like a nomader because I always like walking a lot. I always go on walks, like one hour, two hour works, just sometimes listening to music or sometimes nothing and just like thinking a lot. And I, I could, yeah, I could go so fast. But like even that mode of like how medicine and doctors are just like working so many hours and all my respect to them. Um, if not that, then probably like photography or something with my hands pottery or something like that.
0: Have you ever been saved by a poem?
1: Mm. Oh yeah. So many, so many. And I think I've died so many times and then was relived through so many poets, um, but my first maestro uh, that I credit forever as like saving me, uh, Pablo Neruda, Pablo Neruda, um, walking around that one is just amazing uh, the one from the one that I uh, cited in one of my essays was uh, from his book of questions poem thirty thirty one I could recite both in Spanish and English, like that was my medicine in that time period where I was really sick um, currently, my professors at a s u natalie diaz Solma Sharif are just they're uh, they're just so brilliant and so caring and so smart, so like Solma Sharif will say it matters what you call a thing and then. Natalie Diaz will say from her poem from the desire field. Um, maybe this is what Lorca meant with verde que te quiero verde. There's Lorca. Neruda, of course. Um yeah, it's, it's, I, I get so excited, especially with Neruda. he's just he's lived a life. He he grew up he grew up in, in poverty. Um his parents were his dad was worked out, I believe, in like the the mines, like the railroad. And so to to be in there and to always be walking around and and thinking a lot about his chile and then eventually he he got into politics and then politics poetry and then he was like the pop star of poetry um respectfully there's something about him too where he he one time said as you say pablo neruda one day when i when i die people will still be talking about me and reciting my poems and he's correct.
0: My guest today has been the poet Maritza Estrada. Our conversation was recorded by Zoom. Maritza, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for being on the show and reading.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart. This has been amazing.
0: That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizick. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's Radio Show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.